This is the Short Fuse Podcast. Conversations around the visual arts, music, dance, literature, theater, and film. Short Fuse is produced by the Arts Fuse, the online journal that brings you commentary and criticism. We engage, we explore, we ask questions. Welcome. Elizabeth Howard, in conversation with Mary Beth Meenan, a distinguished photographer recognized for her large-scale community-based portraiture. Mary Beth lives in Massachusetts. And Fred Turner, who is the Harry and Norman Chandler Professor of Communication at Stanford University and the author of From Counterculture to Cyberculture, Stuart Brand, The Whole Earth Network, and The Rise of Digital Utopianism, among other books. Welcome, Fred and Mary Beth, to the Short Fuse podcast. People both shape and are shaped by places. This is certainly true for the physical boundaries and the paths we travel. And it's just as true for the social boundaries of race, ethnicity, class, and gender as we draw around ourselves and others as Carla Shedd writes in her book, Unequal City, Race, Schools, and Perceptions of Injustice. The place we are speaking of is Silicon Valley, and the book that the two of you have written is Seeing Silicon Valley, A Life Inside Fraying America, that's being published May 3rd by the University of Chicago Press. Fred, perhaps you can begin by telling us how you conceived this book. Well, you know, I, I live in Silicon Valley and I've lived here for about 20 years. And as I've watched it change and become ever wealthier and, and, and more unequal, I've also thought to myself, this place is for our time what maybe Plymouth, Massachusetts was for the 17th century. It's, it's a city on a hill. It's an exemplary city for how we want the world to be and how the, what the world is becoming. You know, I walk around the valley and the people I, I live around, people who work for Facebook and Twitter and the like, um, say that they are building technologies that make us a better future. Well, that might be true in cyberspace, but you know, I live in this region and I wanted to, folks to see just exactly what it's like to um, you, you know, build a community, a civic order, a society around the technologies that we're developing here. And I thought that the only way to work on that really was to, to help people literally see the space. And you know, Mary Beth's work um, has, has always focused on the people in the space as they as they live their own lives and as they live their lives in relation to the cities that they inhabit. And, and so she seemed like the perfect person to, to work that through with. When you look at a work by Mary Beth um, in a book, you hold still and you, you spend a moment with the person in the image in a moment of a quality of the kind that Mary Beth had with that person. You know, Mary Beth is an, has an, I'm just going to talk about you as if you weren't here, Mary Beth, sorry. But, but she has an ability to, to sort of have a, a, a warm, empathic connection with kind of anybody. And if you have that kind of relation with someone, then you can begin to maybe imagine a different world. But you can only do that, I think, by entering their lives visually, you know, it, through the experience of the image. I, I don't think I can write in a way that, that, that brings those people to life the way Mary Beth's photographs do. There are things you can do in a photography book that you can't do in scholarly writing. And there are things you can do when you work with someone like Mary Beth that you can't do alone. And I wanted to have, have both those kinds of pleasures, and I have. Mary Beth, when I was working on on putting this podcast together, I thought I would look at Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. I, I looked back and I thought, what a time 
to be releasing something with images. I thought back to, remember, it was a child stitching a soccer ball that started the whole corporate social responsibility um, movement. And in uh, James Agee writes in uh, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, actually the effort is to recognize a portion of unimagined existence and to contrive techniques proper to its recording, communication, analysis, and defense. Tell us, Mary Beth, how you approach this. They're wonderful photographs. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. And it's such an honor to be here. Um, <laughs> I was so honored and really bewildered to get this phone call out of the blue from an old colleague who said that there was a professor at Stanford who had seen my work and wanted to talk to me about working on a project together about Silicon Valley, really trying to see Silicon Valley for what it was. And my first reaction was, why me? I mean, I'm here in New England, I'm 3000 miles away. I felt as sort of entranced by the lore of Silicon Valley as any other human on, you know, on the planet who, who has heard what Silicon Valley is and has thought about it in relation to our gadgets and our technology. And then I realized that I could use the process that I've used really for the past 25 years of deep immersion in places and really trying to do deep listening and thoughtful interviews and really trying to get at what a place feels like on its own terms and what people's lives in places feel like in, in, on their own terms. So in my long conversations with Richard, whom I photographed, who worked at Tesla, you know, he came up in a system in which workers were paid, they were, they were protected by the union, they had benefits. He remembers the old days of being in a, a United Auto worker in which he could really raise a family and establish some equity. But now what he sees for the same kinds of jobs is so much insecurity and so much less, so much less pay, so much less security. So what he's saying is, we're not asking for a huge piece of the pie. What we're asking for is enough financial security to have a cooler beer, to take our family on vacation, to go on a camping trip, and to feel secure in our homes. And he is able to make a direct comparison to being a worker decades ago, before the economy started to shift into being all about shareholder profit. He's able to make a direct comparison in his own life to the relative security he felt as an auto worker decades Decades ago and how he feels now. So that was the process through which I, I worked through what Silicon Valley was and gradually came up with this body of work. I just read the 2021 Silicon Valley uh, Index, which was released by a nonprofit organization, which points out that the stark inequities in the local economy, health, hunger, and digital access are now more pronounced than ever before, and that it have become frankly, the pandemic has made it much worse. Fred, when you look back, since you have been there for 20 years, you are involved at Stanford University. How do you describe how this grew over time? Well, okay, I, I think that it's a great question. And there's, there's two parts. I, I think that, you know, I work at Stanford University, which is a, a lovely campus. It's huge. It's beautiful. And it used to be that when I came to work, I just came to campus and I rode my bike onto campus and didn't notice anything. Today, um, I ride past uh, a row upon row of trailers and broken down cars where people are living. 
People live in their cars on the edge of the Stanford campus, Stanford being the university that brought us Google. And for me, that's a, that's a really just concrete marker of the kind of inequality that's here. One number that's really important, we have more than 70, 70 billionaires with a B in Silicon Valley, and yet three in 10 kids have to get reduced price or free lunches because they are food insecure. That's, that's just you know, ridiculous. Um, now, you know, what's interesting, I've been thinking a lot about how, how this has come to be. And of course, the, the story of American inequality is a long one. But in the Valley, I think one thing that happens is that the mythology of geniuses making machines that change the world by managing invisible forces is so powerful that it obscures the fact that actually those machines depend on cadres of people of all different ages, colors, cultures, who live and work with real bodies in, in this real place. And as long as you can tell a story about special people making special things, you can justify the, 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 the pushing away of other kinds of people, the non-special people. And, and, and this is terrible. And this is going on across the United States. And this is one of the reasons that Mary Beth and I wanted to do the book is because the Silicon Valley really is an emblem of something that's happening, I think, across the country. Is, is it partially that the myth when you look at Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, is that you you would come, you might fail at what you did, you might lose all your money, and then you would start again so that they weren't looking at this in the same way that you might look at it in other parts of the United States. Isn't it a different sort of inequality? You know, I, I think that across the United States and, and here in Silicon Valley, um, we still live in the shadow of um, the, a sort of Puritan mythology. You know, when the Puritans came here in the 17th century, they came with the belief that God had already decided who was going to heaven, and that if you were going to heaven, you were probably going to be rewarded with wealth here on this earth. And so they pursued the, the acquisition of wealth as an emblem of God's favor. That logic pervades New England, where Mary Beth is from, and Silicon Valley, even though we're 3,000 miles away. And that logic, I think, is one of the things that we're trying so hard to undercut by making visible the actual people who live here in their lives. Mary Beth, you were able to compare this to your grandmother working in Massachusetts. Perhaps you can share that with us. Well, that was one of the most interesting connections that I ended up making. You know, in the beginning, I thought I, I didn't know what my connection would be to the place. But you know, I have always been really committed to pushing against dominant, you know, dominant narratives of places and people that obscure and denigrate or somehow distort what life is really like or who people really are. And so when I got to Silicon Valley, I thought, my God, these this myth of this being a place where success is happening, that's glittering and functioning for the good of all, is actually a place that's creating enormous stress in the lives of the people who are all participating in its functioning. So it's not just that we've done a book about the people who are in the trailers outside Stanford campus, although I do have a portrait of a couple named Abraham and Brenda who are in one of those very campers uh, in front of Stanford's campus. But it's that everyone who's participating in that economy is under a certain kind of pressure that doesn't make it out into the narrative that the rest of us experience. So this myth is harmful in its own way in that we're our economy is kind of chugging along and we're not seeing the cost and we're not seeing the dysfunction. And when I think about my grandmother, the connection that really uh, hit home for me was that, 
you know, I am the product of immigrants, unskilled laborers who came to the country and were able to enter an industrial economy in New England and create homes and futures for future generations. I'm one of them. You know, my college education and my relative sense of well-being is is directly linked to the ways in which my grandparents and great-grandparents from Ireland and Italy were able to build homes and futures and equity and financial strength. And I do not see the equivalent happening for the people that I met and interviewed and spent time with and photographed in, in Silicon Valley. Um, I think that, you know, since the University of Chicago School of Economics, since the 1980s, our sense of what corporations are supposed to be doing has changed. And the the prioritizing of shareholder profit has really made workers less comfortable and less secure within this ecosystem. And um, I sent Elizabeth, I sent you an article this morning um, about the business roundtable two years ago where corporate executives are coming together and saying maximizing shareholder profit might not be the best thing for us. And we need to change our messaging about really doing good in the communities. But how many of those large corporations have funds to do work? outside of Silicon Valley or in other countries or charity work that's not directly benefiting the people on whom their companies depend, which is the workers and at all levels. So I'm not an economist, but I do see that the people that I grew up knowing and loving uh, uh, were I to transpose them now into the equivalent jobs in Silicon Valley that they held over the past decades, their lives would not be as secure as they were. I actually helped Royal Dutch Shell incorporate human rights into their general operating principles after the execution of Ken Sawawiwa. So it's it's a very complicated working with senior level executives to try to help them understand what's happening. Fred, you mentioned that there are something like 70 billionaires in Silicon Valley. So you think, how can they look at this? But you see, they're not, they're not necessarily seeing it, are they? No, and this is exactly the rub. And and this, you know, you, you mentioned Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. You know, that book was done at a time when we were in a depression and the, the mass media were celebrating celebrities and popular political figures. We're living at a time now where many of the people here in the wealthiest part of America, or certainly one of them, um, are living in depression era kinds of conditions. And yet we are busy celebrating Mark Zuckerberg and uh, the, the founder of Tesla, uh, Elon Musk, and um, a particular cadre of white, white male leaders. And we need to physically see the people who are here just as we did in the 1930s. We needed to see the, the, the real Americans on whose, on whose labor the success of the country depended. We need to see the real Americans here in Silicon Valley on whose labor our success depends. Let me also just say that as Silicon Valley goes, mm-hmm. so goes America. You know, it's, it's sort of a famous saying that as California goes, so goes America. Um, you know, if, if this is where America is going to, to increased inequality, to increased racial division, um, to folks who have global financialized interests, um, who are able to take advantage of folks who, who don't, um, that's not the society I want to inhabit. I want to inhabit a society much more closely connected to another part of the American dream, the part that brought Mary Beth's parents and grandparents to this country and allowed them to succeed. I want to live in a country where we are equal, collaborative, despite our differences, and we build a better society for everyone in it. Um, And I I think we can do that. 
One of my main goals on every project is to show the finis- finished work back in the community and, and to get feedback about whether I got it right. You know, did I get this right? Does this feel like what it feels like to be you or to be living in your space? And that was just the greatest, it was the greatest form of validation when someone who'd lived in Silicon Valley for a long time saw an early form of the book and said, you've really captured the uneasiness that we all feel here. And so in subsequent interviews and interactions with people, I've said, does this feel right to you? Does it feel like I've got it right in terms of your point of view? And when people have said yes, that there's something existential about this book that um, rings true to them. And so if this is a bellwether for the rest of the country, and if these corporations that can generate so much wealth for some are also creating so much stress and so much sort of community degradation, um, that's the message that we hope to get out and hope to shift people's thinking about this space and about this economy. Clearly, people will need to buy the book to see the photographs, and I hope I hope everyone will buy the book. And also, the Arts Fuse online journal is going to have some of the photographs from from the book, so people can go online and look at them. But Mary Beth, they all have a description. Are there some comments or some dialogue that you'd like to share with us? Well, I mean, that's the joy, the personal spark and joy for me is in the photography and in the meeting the people and trying to make the imagery that will bring, that will really connect a viewer to these people who have given themselves something of themselves to me in those moments. You know, it's really, it sounds funny, but it really is a spiritual practice of really getting into kind of communion with these humans and trying to say, can I make a photograph that sums up the beauty of you or the spirit of you, or that somehow conveys who you are to a viewer and, and a photograph that's compelling enough to bring a viewer in and, and maybe uh, inspire that person to shift their thinking a little bit. Sarah Elizabeth Lewis is a critic whom I love and admire. And she talks about how the art, there's a kind of surrender that happens with the encounter, the aesthetic encounter, that if you make something beautiful and compelling enough, the person standing in front of it could actually shift their way of perceiving the world. So, you know, Richard, for example, is someone who, you know, he'd been in his, he'd been in in the auto industry for his whole life and was making upwards of $150,000 a year when the plant closed that he had been working at that now became Tesla. And he goes back into Tesla working on the, he goes back into the plant as a worker working on the floor. And now he's making something like $40,000 a year. And he's noticing things that um, are not good for workers, you know, injuries, long hours, that the workers don't have the protections that he grew up in the union having. And so he tries to organize a union and suddenly, you know, he's he's out of a job. Soon he, he he's out of a job and he notices that the workers that he'd been trying to organize and sort of protect um, have lost hope that they will be able to have those protections because they need their paycheck. And so they can't, they don't have the privilege of just walking away from those jobs. So, you know, Richard brought through the United Auto Workers Union and and Richard, I was able to meet so many of the workers at Tesla and to talk about that feeling of sort of powerlessness against this large corporation in this housing market and, you know, uh, 
the cost of living is so high in this housing market and they need to be able to stay working to pay their bills. Another person is Teresa, who is on the cover of the book, who is working in a food truck in Palo Alto, you know, the food truck that goes all over Silicon Valley serving people. And she had come from Mexico and it had been something like 20 years since she had seen her family and she was just working to get by. You know, she lived in a house with her daughters and she was just able to get by on that paycheck. So I want to I want to bring in Cristobal. Cristobal is the first person actually in the text. You know, he's an army veteran. Um, he works as a contract security guard at Facebook. He brings people into the building. Um, he makes $21 an hour, which sounds great if you're in Alabama, but here in Silicon Valley, that gets him um, the ability to live in a garden shed. I want folks to really hear this. This man working for and enabling Facebook, a multi-trillion dollar company, making this company work, cannot afford a house with running water. He lives in a shed without plumbing. Think about that. And he's an army veteran. He served two tours in Iraq. He was born in this country. Right. You know, when I am glad you brought up Cristobal because I had met him through some labor, some people who were working on behalf of workers in the Valley, and they introduced me to Cristobal and we met and had a long, I did long interviews with everyone in the book and transcribed those and then often would go back and make the portrait. Sometimes the portrait would happen first, but often the portrait would happen after long conversation with people. So I had met Cristobal in a sushi restaurant in Mountain View and we ate and ate and ate. And then I went back and met him another time to make the portrait. And when he, when I met on that, in that house and he brought me to the back, I was so overwhelmed. I couldn't believe it. And I was so furious. And he, and I said, I'm so angry that this is how you have to live. And he said, me too. What do you think I'm working so hard on behalf of workers for? And so just the emotions of that um, were really overwhelming. And so when he's standing there in the portrait, he's standing very proud because he feels that his contributions to this country and this community are not being honored. Mm. It's so wonderful to be able to play a role in bringing this book to, to the public. I, I will do everything I can to, to make sure that people see it. What are we going to do about solutions? I mean, are, is it public-private partnerships? Is it state and local government? Is it, you know, university leaders? And I, I look at the architectural community and, you know, urban planners. I think that, and I think that with the pandemic and, and a number of these things, they really have exposed this underbelly that we have and that we are going to need conversations forums, gatherings to look at how we get through these systemic problems. I, I am reminded of the, of the moment in the 1930s when we had a, faced a similar kind of um, disjunction in American society. And I think, we need, I think we need everybody doing everything. I think we need leadership that articulates a civic vision for America um, and it engages in the redistribution of wealth. Uh, we simply cannot have wealth concentrated at the top 1% and have a good society. That's how you end up in authoritarian messes. That's how you end up in countries that look like some of our South American neighbors. You know, no, we cannot have that kind of inequality. Second, we need a civic ethos in, in a general way. You know, I, I've spent a lot of time studying the 50s. Corporate leaders in the 1950s in America felt like they did their business to support American society and help the country as a whole get better. 
We need to reinstill that ethos in our corporate leaders. Mark Zuckerberg has an obligation to, to work to support the world around him. If he is only doing business to get wealth or to increase the business, um, he's not doing the right thing. So calling folks out and having them do the right thing, I think, is, is, is really important. Um, and, you know, I, I think the last thing that we need is we need institutions that support the kind of redistribution of wealth that we're talking about here. We need a Congress that works. We need a government that works. We also need civic institutions. We need everything from good schools to, to, to good, you know, um, community, community centers. That's the kind of work that we need to do. We need to build a vision of America as a, a civic society that works for everyone. Yeah, that we all feel as there were the citizens, we're equal, we have some sense of. Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, I, I may have advantages, but I, my, my obligation is to share those advantages with the people around me. Well, and one, one of the things I hope that comes through in the book is that, you know, to, by looking at Silicon Valley as an actual space, it's not that big. You know, it's an actual space with human. We are all interdependent. And to look at Silicon Valley and think that there are all of these people in this small area, why isn't it good for everyone for this for the situation to be working for everyone? The more people for whom it works, the better, the healthier the community is overall. So it doesn't really it doesn't really make sense for me to have my money at the top with so many people suffering when we could all be suffering less. My money could be going toward building up something that's healthier for everyone, myself included. Well, one of the things um, the independent bookstores are making a very big difference right now in promoting and selling books. Uh, they've just done a wonderful job, particularly through the pandemic. I was talking with someone, I was in conversation with the author of uh, World of Wonders, actually last evening, and, and she talked about her book, uh, which was on the bestseller list and was the uh, Barnes and Noble book of the year, never went through some of the, it was the independent bookstores that kind of passed it along one to the other. So do you have plans to be in independent bookstores? Where can people find you? And I'm sure there'll be online programs. I'm sure they'd love to know. Well, yes, we do. We plan to be in independent bookstores around the country. And the University of Chicago is making sure that the book gets into all of those places. Um, we're also, the book is being launched May 3rd. It will come out next Monday. And we have a series of events planned that we'd love to invite your listeners to. We have um, a talk on May 13th at the Griffin Museum of Photography here in Boston, an online Zoom talk for the community here. We also have the opening, the grand opening of the book is on May 3rd at City Lights Books in San Francisco. Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> So much more fun to be in person for both of those but and then another and then a series of other talks that we'll have on the arts views on the arts views site so thank you so much for that yeah no absolutely come list and and you know these talks are because of the miracle of zoom uh created you know <laughs> through technologies developed here in silicon valley um, we welcome everyone you can you can be at the talk in san francisco you can be at the talk in massachusetts and we would love to talk with you um you know as i hope this book shows we want to be part of an America where people talk to one another, and we'd like you to be part of that conversation. And I will put these dates in the the episode notes so our um, our listeners can look. And well, Fred and Mary Beth, it's been such a pleasure being in conversation with you, and I hope that our listeners will have a chance to get the book. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank you. Wonderful.
wonderful. Thank you. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through the short fuse podcast at gmail.com. You can support us through Patreon. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions. Thank you.